Well, hello, you magnificent geeky people. How the dickens are you? Welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Reggie here again with yet another hour of geeky news, views, reviews and general stuff. It's been an interesting week, ladies and gentlemen. It's been a very interesting week. And so we are going to get started straight away with a bit of geeky news. This news really changes everything. Okay, so news. Well, as ever, we are not going to be reporting a huge amount of news about film and TV because most of it I'm ignoring on the grounds that I am standing in solidarity with the SAG after a WGA strike against the evil, evil, evil studios. But I can't let this one pass. And it is actually to do with the SAG after a WGA strike. And this is news specific. This is the first time ever I have tailored news to a specific listener. This item is entirely for Geek at the Gate, Helen who has not been on the show for a very, very long time because she's busy doing important stuff like raising two kids. But it was Helen who finally persuaded me to watch Supernatural, the show about two brothers driving around America in a 1972 Ford Camaro and, you know, killing monsters. It was great. I actually haven't finished it completely. Uh, I watched into about season seven and got bored and discovered that Star Trek Discovery was on and watched that instead. Sorry. Uh, but actually, the first five or six seasons, absolute gold. So some people, Helen, hello, uh, you've got a week. Uh, because if you're listening to this on the day it drops, next Thursday, a week from now, August the 31st, the Supernatural cast and crew is reuniting for a SAG-AFTRA WGA picket and reunion. This comes from none other than Supernatural creator Eric Kripke. So next week, starting at 9am up until lunchtime, because, you know, actors don't be working in the afternoon, uh... The cast, crew and writers behind Supernatural are going to pick it in celebration of 15 years of Supernatural. Kripke reckons this could be the biggest reunion ever in support of the union's fight against the billionaires. Kripke is also suggesting that there will be pie and burgers. And, you know, if you've seen the show, you will understand that if they want Dean Winchester to turn up, there had better be pie. And, you know, this is in a fine tradition that is emerging of the cast and crew of various shows turning out en masse at the same time, not only in support of the strike, but to bring attention to it. It's very easy not to pay attention to these things. And so, you know, I mean, the Screen Actors Guild in particular has got an awful lot of big name members. And it's nice to see people like Kripke and, you know, the cast of, of Supernatural. I note he's not actually committing that Sam or Dean will be there. I bet Bobby is, though. I bet Bobby is. But, you know, the likes of The Rock. Uh, I know the, uh, the Star Trek Picard crew turned out all together at one point. And 
you know, this is the advantage that SAG has. People know who these actors are. And it's very important not only to stand in solidarity with everybody else, but also to try and capture the imagination of the people who are on the sidelines. And this kind of thing does that. So jolly well done, folks. Helen, I imagine you can get a flight to L.A. in time to be there. That's all I'm saying. OK, and on to less happy news, at least from my point of view. Most of you have not read Bone. I know this because most of you are not massive comics geeks and even a lot of massive comics geeks have not read Bone. This is something that I find incomprehensible, but there you are, what you're going to do. Uh, if you don't know what Bone is, Bone is a comic series from the 90s about a bunch of misfits, the Bones, who find themselves in an idyllic valley and they have adventures. It's a lot more fun than that sounds. It was written and drawn by a cartoonist called Jeff Smith, who is responsible in Bone for the greatest visual gag in the history of comics. There are a number of people who you can reduce to fits of giggles. I am one of these people. Just by looking them square in the eye and saying, stupid, stupid rat creatures. You had to be there. You still can be there. If you read Bone issue one, then you will understand why that punchline is so funny. Jeff Smith, what I'm saying basically is Jeff Smith is a genius and ought to be significantly better known than he is. When people talk about the series Bone, they use the word words like iconic and legendary. And this is nonsense. It's far, far more important than that. So it is with huge disappointment that a lot of people read that Jeff Smith's book tour, uh, which was supposed to be taking up the rest of the year, has been cancelled. What is of significantly more concern to well, anyone who's ever read anything by Jeff Smith, basically, is the reason. Um, Smith is recuperating from a cardiac arrest, which he suffered uh, a couple of weekends ago. It's going to be a long road to recovery. And uh, in a statement that was put out by Cartoon Books, which is the publishing company that Jeff Smith owns and is, basically, um, he apologises uh, to his fans uh, who were looking forward to seeing him at a number of cons. Uh, Rob Con uh, in Virginia, uh, CXXC in Ohio, uh, the Bedrock Comic Con in Texas, and the New York Comic Con uh, coming up in, uh, of all places, New York City. Hopefully, uh, Jeff will be back on the road next year. Uh, our best wishes, and the best wishes of everybody at uh, Geeking and at Destination Venus go out to Jeff Smith. If you want to see some of the genius of this guy uh, and also to understand why stupid, stupid rat creatures is so funny, uh, drop into the shop. And we, ha we actually have a reading copy of The Complete Bone under the counter. Uh, I can't sell it to you. It's far too beat up for that. Uh, it's a well-loved, well-read copy. But anyone is welcome to come and partake of the genius 
that is Jeff Smith's bone. Uh, and I encourage you to do so. And then, you know, order a copy for yourself because, you know, we're a bookshop. Anyway, speaking of things that are going to go into the shop that I'm quite excited about, Blade News! Now, it will not have escaped your attention that there's going to be a film featuring Blade. There have already been three, one of which is amazing, one of which is really good, and one of which has an early role by Ryan Reynolds in it. Um, there's going to be New Blade featuring a new Blade, but not for a bit, because, you know, the strike. Now, this means that I think some things have gotten a little out of sync, because I'm imagining that Marvel would have wanted a significant landmark in the Blade comic to have happened closer to a movie. It doesn't look as though that's going to happen, and I don't care. There is going to be a major, major event in the world of the Blade comics, because the character's co-creator, the great Marv Wolfman, a name you probably don't know unless you're a massive comics geek, but trust me, Marv Wolfman is an absolute giant to people like me. He's the co-creator of Blade back in the 70s, and he's coming back to the character for what he says is, and these are not my quotes, these are his quotes, one last time. Interestingly, this is not as part of the main book. There is actually a Blade comic right now featuring Blade by somebody who's not Marv Wolfman. But Wolfman's coming back to do a one-shot. Uh, basically, what Marvel is doing, Marvel have this thing called What If, where they do like hypothetical stories. You know, what if Frank Castle was bitten by the radioactive spider, not Peter Parker? Then you'd have Spider Punisher. What if Captain America hadn't fought in World War Two? What if Peggy Carter had taken the super the, the super soldier serum? What if? What if? What if? What if? And then they do a story about how the things would have been different if that particular what if scenario had happened. Well, they're doing a series called What If Dark, which is what if, but what if something bad had happened? And in this series, we're having what if the Tomb of Dracula had been different. And Tomb of Dracula, of course, is the comic in which, back in 1972, Marv Wolfman and artist Gene Colan introduced the character of Blade. If you are unclear who Blade is, first of all, and actually I don't think I'm really breaching my strike rules by pointing out there is a 1998 film starring Wesley Snipes, which brilliantly introduces the character of Blade. You may go and watch that wherever you can find a DVD of it. Um, if you're not familiar with Blade, and you're not about to go and watch the movie, Blade is a half-human, half-vampire hybrid who is half-vampire because while his mother was pregnant, she was bitten by a vampire. And as a result, Blade was born with most of a vampire's strengths. You know, he's super strong, he's got heightened senses, but few of the vampiric weaknesses, particularly... He is able to walk around in sunshine without catching fire, which is a real bonus. Well, this time, Wolfman is turning, te teaming up with the artists David Cutler and Scott Hanna to show what had happened if Blade was fully turned. 
by Dracula, turning the classic Marvel horror hero into a full-on bloodsucker. Which, I think, is an interesting concept. Wolfman says that back in 1972, he was a fledgling comics writer who was mostly writing you know, sort of short two to eight page monster stories. That's when he was approached by the editor Roy Thomas, the great Roy Thomas, who asked him if he wanted to write Tomb of Dracula, which would be his very first series for Marvel. And I think looking back, this, this is the book that jump started Wolfman's career. I, I think without writing Tomb of, Tomb of Dracula, Wolfman might not have gone on to be the giant that he was. So now, more than 50 years later, Marvel have gone back and asked him to once again dive into the pool of Marvel horror uh, and bring back the cast that he created with Gene Colan so many years ago. Uh, this is a book that's going on sale in November. You can pre-order it now. Uh, uh, it has a cover by uh, Giuseppe uh, Camoncoli. You can pre-order it now from all good comic shops, including mine. I don't know, man. I think it's... It, look, I love Wolfman's writing. I also love Wolfman's era. I mean, Wolfman is not a modern writer. Wolfman was big in the 70s. He was at his height. He was He was a mature sort of experienced comics writer when I first came across his work on Batman, I think, back in the 1980s. You know, that his heyday was 30 years ago, more than 30 years ago, probably. But because of that, he brings a different sensibility to comics, which uh, I'm, I'm interested to see how that works in the modern era. So, yeah, bring it on. And yes, as one of our regular listeners commented a couple of weeks ago, what's this? A comic store promoting comics? Wow. Yeah, and, you know, you're right, listener, you're right. I should do this more often. Now, more news may have happened, but either it's not happened at time of recording or it's happened in fields that I'm not currently prepared to report. So uh, I guess we'll wrap the news up there, shall we? This news really changes everything. And if all of that news were not enough, of course, big things have also been happening in the world of space. Things that have even made an impact on the mainstream media. So let's go take a look, shall we? So we'll start our roundup of This Week in Space with an update on Lunar 25, or as it will now forever be known, the ill-fated Luna 25. If you were listening last week, you will know that Luna 25 is allegedly Russia's first moon mission in 47 years. Now, I took issue with this last week, and I still take issue with it. Uh, Luna 24, which was, what, 1976, something like that, was not a Russian moon mission. It was a Soviet moon mission. And this matters because, as I keep saying, Russia and the old Soviet Union are not the same thing. The Russian Federation is the Russian Federation. The old Soviet Union encompassed many, many countries which are now independent and have nothing to do with Russia. Chief among them at the moment, I suppose, would be Ukraine. And Ukraine is a country where a lot of Soviet 
space stuff happened. So Luna 25 is the 25th mission in the Luna program, but it's not the 25th Russian moon mission. It is the first Russian moon mission because for the existence of Luna 1 to 24, Russia as an independent nation did not exist. And sometimes it's important to remind people of that. Anyway, Luna 25, whether it is Russia's first ever or first in 47 years, ended in, um, well, the mainstream media is calling it disaster. And honestly, that's hyperbole. Ended in failure last Saturday as the spacecraft went, effectively, it went into the wrong orbit. Somebody somewhere made a mistake, whether that was at mission control during the manoeuvre or whether that was during the design phase when everything was being programmed. I cannot tell you, and I very much doubt that Roscosmos will ever say, but it went into the wrong orbit, specifically an orbit that took it rather too close to the planet's surface, which is to say Luna 25 crashed into the moon. Now, I am not one to gloat over the failures of people that I disagree with. Uh, were I that kind of person, I would be pointing and laughing uncontrollably at Elon, at Elon Musk pretty much all the time. I'm not happy that Luna 25 has failed. I'm not. I am happy that a Russian propaganda mission designed to take attention away from Russian war crimes in Ukraine has not succeeded in doing that. I'm also pleased that a Russian propaganda mission designed to try and convince people that Russia is still a nation at the cutting edge of anything has also failed. Pleased about that. Am I sad that Luna 25 has failed? Not as sad as I would have been, actually. Uh, I will never celebrate the failure of any scientific mission. And Luna 25 was a scientific mission that was intended to do science. It wasn't, however, going to do science that nobody else was going to do. Uh, the Indians are about to land their Chandera 4 uh, spacecraft. In fact, by, as I'm talking to you, by the time you listen to this, it may have already happened. That's going to land also in the, the lunar polar, south polar region. It's going to do roughly the same science and deliver roughly the same information that Luna 25 would have delivered. Humanity is not losing out on knowledge by this. I, so, you know, that's where all that finishes. Except I think we always make a mistake when we look at things like this uh, as things done purely purely by states and there were people involved in this too so i want not only to give a shout out but also send our respect and best wishes to mikhail marov who is 90 and was rushed to hospital after what is being reported as a sharp deterioration in his health after the Luna 25 spacecraft spun out of control and crashed into the moon. Mikhail Markov was the leader, the guiding light of the Luna program for the Soviets back in the day. And it's been his passion for a long time to get the Luna program back up and running. And so this was his chance. And... He's 90 
and it's not going to happen. And and for him, that is genuinely a disaster and genuinely a tragedy. You know what? I don't know anything about Mikhail Marov. He might be a dreadful person. I don't know. I doubt it. Uh, most scientists involved in the Soviet space program seem to me to have been perfectly decent people, keeping their heads down and getting on with it. So I, I, I have sympathy for Mr. Marov on two counts. First, that the program that he was so passionate about is, I think, probably dead in the water now. And, you know, it, it's one chance to become something important has probably been spent. Certainly, uh, a 90-year-old man in ill health, he's probably not going to see any success, even if the programme does continue. So I'm sorry about that. I'm genuinely, on a personal level, very sorry about that. I'm also actually, again, on a personal level, sorry that a programme for which he clearly had so much passion and so much belief has been co-opted by Putin in the way that it has. Any bright spot, as far as I can see, is that the failure of the mission is being reported as a failure of Putin's attempt at a moon landing, not as a failure of Morov's attempts at a moon landing. And certainly, insofar as this project has not been a success, I am very pleased that that lack of success is being laid at the appropriate door. Also, this isn't relevant to this story, but I think it is relevant as a as a general point that I, I'm sort of feeling the need to make. Quite a lot of what I've just said is political. And there are people who have complained at me before about bringing politics into my science reporting. And if you are one of those people and are currently reaching for your keyboard, I am just going to say that, yes, I get it. And I do actually have quite a lot of sympathy for that view. However, I think this story is another example of why you can't keep politics out of science reporting, particularly not in relation to space science, because so much of what happens in space science is political in nature. Would the Americans have gone to the moon in 1969 were it not for politics? Probably not. Would the Russians have had a space programme at all in the 1950s and 60s had it not been for politics? Probably not. Khrushchev had no particular interest in the science of space exploration. He was interested in two things as far as space exploration was concerned. That was A, sticking one in the eye of the Americans by beating them, which actually the Soviet space program did quite successfully for quite a long time. Although, to be fair, mostly by dint of not caring how many people it killed, but that's a different discussion. Uh, the other thing he cared about was having a reasonable cover for his intercontinental ballistic missile program, which, if we're honest, was one of the reasons the Americans were doing the same thing. So, you know, of course it's political. Of course it is. There's science in there too, which is what I try and focus on. But sometimes the reason the science is getting done is also worth remembering. Here endeth the boring preachy part, or at least that part of the boring preachy part. I make no promises for the rest of the show. What else is happening in space? Well, I'm hoping, hoping to have breaking news by the end of the show about the successful landing of the Chandrayaan-5 Indian lunar lander. Uh, stay tuned for that, dear listener. I am recording this on Wednesday, the 23rd of August, and it is just going up to 20 past 10 in the morning. 
We should know by lunchtime today. So by the time you hear this, we'll know, hopefully. So, as I say, look forward to breaking news later in the show. Okay, so what next? Well, while we wait for that breaking news, I think perhaps it's time to have a look at comics again. Now, I'm not going to do reviews today. Well, unless you, well, I suppose this might count as a historical review. One of the things that people ask me in the shop when they ask me for recommendations is whether the classics are any good or not. So what I'm going to do over the next couple of weeks is pick out a couple of classic stories. You know, the, the comics that everyone says, oh, you must read so-and-so. And also the writers and artists involved in the aforementioned classic comics. And we're going to start with the hairy old wizard from Northampton himself. We're going to start with Alan Moore. Now, we're starting with Alan Moore because he's a name that a lot of people know. He gets interviewed in various sort of guardian arts publications from time to time. And he is, without question, we just there's no debate about this, one of the giants of modern comics. Not just modern comics, though. Moore is a writer who goes beyond comics. He's not written comics for quite a while now, for reasons we might get into. Because I am fantastically old, I was getting into comics pretty much during Alan Moore's heyday in the mid to late 80s. But because I'm not that old, I was kind of at the end of Alan Moore's heyday and he'd already earned a reputation as being a really grumpy old man. Bearing in mind this is nearly, what, this is 35 years ago now. He wasn't old at the time, particularly. He was older than me, but I was like 15. Everybody was older than me. And you'll still see Alan Moore reported as being a grumpy old man. And a lot of the, the, the coverage of Moore is people asking me questions about stuff he wrote 35 years ago. Alan Moore saying, I've got nothing more to say about that, really. And that being reported as Alan Moore still being furious about stuff that happened 35 years ago. And I don't think that's fair reporting. I think that's ridiculous reporting. I don't know quite how Alan Moore came to be the caricature that he's portrayed as, because that doesn't bear any relation to real life at all, as far as I can see. So why is Alan Moore grumpy? What is he grumpy about? And what did he do in the first place? Well, gather round, because this is important. Alan Moore is a British comics creator, a British comics writer. He doesn't draw, he just writes. And the world of British comics in the late 1970s and early 1980s, when Alan Moore was beginning to cut his teeth, there wasn't a lot around in British comics. What there was was a comic called 2000 AD, a date which back then was still years in the future. I know, time passes. There was also a magazine, I suppose you might call it. I would call it a comic. I don't think it called itself a comic, called Warrior. Now, these two publications together formed the basis of the beginnings of Moore's career as a major talent. Over in 2000 AD, Alan Moore created three strips that I think, I mean, it's not the only thing he did for Tooth, but Alan Moore created three strips, which I think still stand up 
as really great work. Uh, the first would be the character of Abelard Snars, the most intelligent man in the universe. Uh, there was also uh, a story which I suppose you could say was influenced by E.T. about uh, uh, an alien and the people he befriends on Earth called Skiz. And my personal favourite, and I think for me, the best work that Alan Moore ever did would be The Ballad of Halo Jones. Uh, which is something we're probably going to talk about at some length at a different time. But these things are all classics. They're all brilliant. And they all, st- as I say, they all stand up. You you could read certainly The Ballad of Halo Jones now, today. And it still feels not just relevant, but cutting edge. It's really good. That The art by Ian Gibson is next level amazing. But it really is the story of the disaffected kid, Halo Jones, who escapes her dead-end life to get out amongst the stars. It's In many ways, it's an archetypal working-class kid made good story. The science fiction twist adds a little something to it, but there's real sparkle from the characterization that Moore puts in there that really does lift it way above pretty much anything else that Tooth was putting out at the time. And, you know, we're talking about the early 80s here, when 2000 AD was very much at its height. Warrior, Alan Moore, created is a strong word, and I'm not going to go into the whole Miracle Man thing now, but Alan Moore worked, wrote, wrote, let's go with wrote, reinvented, actually reinvented is a better word, Alan Moore reinvented a character called Marvel Man had been a character in British comics before. I mean, since since the 1950s, there'd been a Marvel Man knocking around various bits of British comics. Marvel Man was, in fact, a rip-off of Captain Marvel. Not the one that Disney makes films about now. The first one. The original one. The one that DC now calls Shazam. Now, we'll, we're not going to get into that whole mess either. Basically, the short of that is that there was a character called Captain Marvel who became a superhero if you said the magic word Shazam. The superhero he became was called Captain Marvel. But for various reasons, that name was not protected. And so when an upstart little company called Marvel Comics decided to have a character called Marvel, who became Captain Marvel, there was nothing that DC Comics, who by that time owned the original Captain Marvel stroke Shazam, could do about it. So they renamed their character Shazam and just got on with it. That's not quite what happened here. What happened here in the UK is there was a comic, I forget which one, I could look it up but I'm not going to because it doesn't really matter. There was a comic here in the UK that was reprinting US Captain Marvel stories based on Shazam. Those reprints were pretty much the most popular thing in the comic at the time. And then for reasons that, I again, I don't really know the story behind it, but the, the, the comic, for whatever reason, lost the license to those reprints and they didn't want to lose the most popular strip in their comic so they simply carried the stories on by writing them themselves and to avoid getting into any legal trouble they changed the name of the character from captain marvel to marvel man nobody reading the comic noticed and if they did they didn't care and they just continued on their way that's the character that's the version of the character that Alan Moore revived in 1982 for Warrior magazine. If you know Shazam, you know 
that Billy Batson is a kid who says the magic word and becomes Shazam, or back in the day, Captain Marvel. Alan Moore took that premise and said, OK, now the kid's grown up. So he's an adult and he's forgotten his magic word and he's an adult with adult problems. His relationship's going badly. He's in a terrible job that he hates with a boss who doesn't respect him. You know, all of that stuff, all of that adult stuff. And you have a superhero with modern adult problems. Now, that doesn't sound revolutionary now, largely because Alan Moore paved the way with that. Back then, it was completely revolutionary. And it, again, those stories, if you can find them, those stories that Alan Moore wrote about Marvel Man relatively quickly became known as Miracle Man, because ironically, Marvel Comics threatened to sue. Uh, there's a whole story there as well, which we don't have time to get into now, but it's probably a, an, an entire episode for another time. Those stories about Marvel Man stroke Miracle Man, they still hold up and they still feel fresh and new because that's how good Alan Moore is and that's how far ahead of his time he was. Went on to write V for Vendetta, which again remains a classic, still feels relevant, still feels horribly prescient today, to be honest about fascist Britain in 1997. Again, 1997 from the point of view of then was a long way away. All of this stuff attracted attention from overseas. And Alan Moore was hired by DC Comics as a writer. The first thing he did for them that really made waves was his work on Swamp Thing. Now, Swamp Thing at the time was a little bit in the doldrums. Horror comics weren't all that popular and character was limited in the way he was portrayed. Back then, Swampy was the scientist Alec Holland, who had been turned into a swamp monster by an accident. Alan Moore flipped that on its head. Alan Moore said, no, 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 no. Alec Holland, the scientist, was killed in the accident. Alec Holland is dead. What happened was that the special circumstances around the accident meant that the swamp absorbed the consciousness of Alec Holland and it he, that consciousness was used to animate the swamp itself so that Swamp Thing was the swamp come to life. Swamp Thing was the plants in the swamp made sentient in order to represent the green, the wider plant world and be its defender against the ravages of man. And that concept of the green is still very, very much a part of DC Comics mythology today. It's the green that gives Poison Ivy, the Batman, not quite villain anymore, her powers. It's the green is the counterpoint to the red, which is the force generated by all animals, which is what gives Animal Man and Beast Boy from the Titans. Their power. At least I'm not quite sure it's the red that gives Beast Boy in the comics his powers. It's where Beast Boy in the TV show Titans is getting his powers. Again, Alan Moore pioneered through Swamp Thing the idea that you could use comics to tackle social, political, psychological issues and themes. Again, that's a commonplace idea now. Back then, it was utterly revolutionary. I'm not, I'm not saying that Moore was the only person doing it. Moore was one of the first people to do that in the mainstream of comics. You know, he was at DC, which then and now was regarded as the most establishment 
of all of the comics companies. Having proved himself as a success and become a fan favourite writer, writing and reinvigorating Swamp Thing, DC let him play with the big toys. Got to create his own thing, which was given a very prestige format launch and you know was treated as a, a premium premier flagship product in the watchman which we'll talk about in a minute he was also allowed to play with batman and he wrote one of the definitive batman stories uh, the story that is regarded as the definitive origin for the joker and to my mind the worst thing alan moore ever wrote which is the killing joke uh, so i'm going to tackle the killing joke first the killing joke is one of those books that many people, if you ask them, you know, what are the good Batman stories to read? The Killing Joke is one of the many things that people recommend. I personally do not. Effing hate Killing Joke as a story. And because I do, I'm about to spoiler it massively. So if you haven't read Killing Joke and you'd like to, skip ahead a little bit. Go make a cup of tea. Do something. Spoilers. Spoilers. Spoilers for The Killing Joke coming up. Right, okay, so the idea behind The Killing Joke is that the Joker has a hypothesis. He contends that the only difference between him and Batman is one bad day. The Joker believes that the thing that turned him into what he now is was one bad day. That before that particular bad day, day the joker was just a normal guy a decent bloke trying to do his best and he had one bad day and became the joker to demonstrate this the joker gives batman one bad day first thing he does is he shoots barbara gordon batgirl through the spine then kidnaps her father commissioner james gordon and tortures him and humiliates him in an abandoned fairground, leading Batman on a merry dance across Gotham City as Batman desperately tries to catch the Joker and save Gordon. The story ends with the Joker telling Batman a joke, a bad joke, but a joke nevertheless, and the two of them laughing together as the police arrive. Now, there's some fan discussion about whether the last panel is Batman and the Joker laughing at the punchline of the joke that the Joker has just told, or whether it's the Batman killing the Joker. No comment, and I don't care, because I really hate that story. It's beautifully, beautifully drawn by the brilliant Brian Bolland. But, yeah, there's, there's so much I don't like about it. Uh, I don't like the way Barbara Gordon is treated. Yes, shooting Barbara Gordon through the spine meant that she was no longer Oracle, uh, no longer Batgirl. She became Oracle. Barbara Gordon in canon is a librarian and a genius, and she used those skills to become the person who gave the superheroes in the DC universe all of their information. She became the Oracle. She was also a very positive representation of wheelchair users for a long time. They stopped very quickly drawing Barbara Gordon's wheelchair with handles on the back and started drawing it as the kind of wheelchair people who use wheelchairs because their legs don't work actually use. 
you know, something that is propelled by themselves. And so she became quite the symbol, actually. That wasn't Alan Moore's intent, and that isn't what happens in The Killing Joke. In The Killing Joke, she is presented as a helpless victim. And I didn't like that. That was never Babs. So fundamentally disagree with the premise of the story. There's more to the Joker than one bad day. And they could have used the story to challenge the Joker's view, but they don't. They kind of present the Joker as being sort of right about that. And the whole story also plays into the idea that the Batman himself must be mentally ill or he wouldn't do the things he does. Now, in the real world, that is probably true. But this isn't the real world. This is a world that has superheroes in it. And so becoming one, even if you're not superpowered, is not that crazy a thing. Not a good story. Don't like it. Dislike of the story is compounded by the fact that DC made an animated version of The Killing Joke, which pads out what is quite a short story, in fact, by not implying, but explicitly showing a sexual relationship between Batman stroke Bruce Wayne and Batgirl stroke Barbara Gordon, which is wrong on so many levels, it's unutterably creepy. So hate it, hate it, hate it, hate it. That's not a good place to start. What is a good place to start with Alan Moore's work is Watchmen. Watchmen suffers a little bit because it was, like Shakespeare, it was utterly cutting edge in its time. It's been imitated so much it doesn't feel original anymore. You do have to remind yourself now, I think, when you read Watchmen, that this is what did it first. I should mention Dave Gibbons here. Uh, I'm going to be talking at length about Dave Gibbons in a future show, so I, I'm not deliberately sidebarring him here. I'm just focusing on Alan Moore. Dave Gibbons is the artist who drew Watchmen, and his work was every bit as cutting-edge and groundbreaking as Alan Moore's writing was. But we're going to talk about him later, so bear that in mind. What Watchmen did was take a group of heroes you weren't supposed to like and explore the concept of the superhero through them. Watchmen is the first story, certainly the first mainstream story in comics, to put forward the idea that superheroes are a basically fascist concept and that superheroes themselves may well not be particularly good people and that however they're presented you should be wary of them and so the the, the sort of to call Ozymandias a superman allegory is not quite right but he's the closest thing to a superman you know the clean cut or at least presented as a clean-cut hero in Watchmen. He is the villain of the piece. Again, I've sounded the spoiler horn already. Spoilers for a book that's nearly 40 years old. Night Owl, the, the Batman allegory. Not, again, this is oversimplifying things. Night Owl isn't quite... There's a lot of Blue Beetle, original Blue Beetle, in Night Owl as well. But, you know, the techie, scientific one. He's neurotic and full of doubt. Rorschach, the no-nonsense, straightforward one, is essentially a psychopath, as was the comedian, the alleged hero who whose death sparks off the chain of events in Watchmen. We've got all of that going on. 
and those subplots which feature just regular people going about their regular day, being affected by the activities of the superheroes without any kind of ability to influence what's going on. And of course, the famous, famous ending. The, the book ends with a cataclysm, which has been engineered by Ozymandias, the villain, who does the thing of explaining what his evil plot is to the heroes. And again, and with Watchmen, heroes is always in heavy air quotes. Yeah, you know, Ozymandias explains what he's doing, and as you know, they, they the, the the hero stand in his lair and say, "You'll never get away with this. We're going to stop you." Says, "I'm sorry, I did I did it 45 minutes ago." Yeah, you know, I'm not telling you what I'm going to do. I'm telling you what I've done. I actually don't think that The Watchman is the best thing that Alan Moore wrote. It's his most well-known thing. I think V for Vendetta packs a much harder punch. Uh, in both cases, films exist. Uh, the film of Watchmen is okay. I'm not a big fan of Zack Snyder, who made the film, but I actually like his his take on Watchmen, uh, as does Dave Gibbons. I've spoken to Dave Gibbons about this, and Dave Gibbons quite liked the film. Dave Gibbons was a consultant on the film, and uh, if you look closely, you will see uh, in a, on at least one shot, prob- more than one shot, I think, graffiti in an alleyway that says Dave was here. Uh, that was written by Dave Gibbons on a visit to the set. The Viva Vendetta movie I like less. It's okay. Again, it's okay, but it's not. The book is much, much, much better. Alan Moore hates both films. Alan Moore appears to hate the films made of everything he's written. Uh, one of his great works uh, was a, a study, really, of Jack the Ripper called From Hell. The movie of From Hell featuring Johnny Depp is execrable. It's awful. Don't watch it. Alan Moore had his name taken off that. And in fact, Alan Moore famously has said that he will not have anything to do with films made of work that he does not own. And he will not have his name on it and he will not accept any money for it. Although, although he's stuck to that, he has also subsequently said that he regrets saying that because he'd be a lot richer if he hadn't. And a lot of his stuff has been made into films. There's From Hell, there's Watchmen, there's V for Vendetta, there's The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which is, a terrible, again, a terrible film. Don't watch it. The books are great. He's famously fallen out with almost everyone he's worked for. He doesn't have anything to do with DC anymore because he's fallen out with them. He doesn't have anything to do with 2000 AD anymore because he's fallen out with them. And, again, this is portrayed as Alan Moore being a difficult man to work with. I actually... I think that is true. I think he is a difficult man to work with. But I think it's largely because he's very principled and he thinks stories matter. And unlike almost everybody else, Alan Moore will not compromise. Alan Moore also doesn't cosy up to journalists because he gets understandably fed up, I think, of people asking him the same questions, which he has answered many times. He is not happy that DC Comics have continued the Watchmen universe. He wanted that to be a one and done thing. It's a single story. It is told there doesn't need to be a Watchman too. DC Comics, however, felt that this is a thing that we can make a lot of money off of and has continued to publish things written by other people in that Watchman universe and has even integrated the Watchman universe into the main DC universe now. Alan Moore is not happy with that and has said so. He's also a little bit cross about the deal that he signed 
with DC Comics. Basically, the deal was he created uh, or co-created with Dave Givens the characters in Watchmen. Yes, they are influenced by um, existing characters, but I mean, which comics characters aren't? And the contract that he signed says that DC only retain ownership of those characters for as long as Watchmen remains in print. Now, at the time that contract was signed, comics did not stay in print very long. And so it was reasonable for him to believe that he would get his ideas and his characters back in, you know, five years, ten at the most. Of course, Watchmen has never been out of print, is never likely to be out of print, and Alan Moore is never going to get his characters back. And he is irked by that and by the way that DC has behaved with his characters since. I can understand that. That doesn't seem particularly prima donnery to me. That scratches the surface of Alan Moore. I would recommend actually exploring beyond his comics work. Uh, if you're going to look at his comics work, the two things I would particularly single out for your attention are The Ballad of Halo Jones and Watchmen. He's also written quite a lot of prose stuff, and there I would recommend The Voice of the Fire, which I think was his first novel, and I would also recommend a, a book he wrote called Jerusalem. I've read Jerusalem. It's very long, it's very thick, and it's very dry. It's essentially a history of Northampton, but it's so much more than that, as is always the case with Alan Moore's work. It's not the most accessible book in the world, but it is worth the effort. I would suggest that it's probably not a book you're going to sit down and read in, in one go. You, you're going to want to read a few pages at a time, maybe a chapter at a time, and be reading something else at the same time. But unlike so many other books of similar girth, it is worth the effort. This is not Ulysses we're talking about. It's probably about as long as James Joyce's Ulysses, but it's actually a good read, whereas Ulysses most definitely isn't. And don't at me if there are any James Joyce fans in the audience. Just don't. I had to study that wretched book for my degree, and honestly, that's the time I'm never getting back. So yeah, four things that I would point you at if you want to get the essence of Alan Moore. Halo Jones, Watchmen, Voice of the Fire, Jerusalem. You should probably throw V for Vendetta in there as well. For that, there's a lot still to go at. All of it's good. He didn't really write anything that's terrible. I don't like Killing Joke, but it's not actually badly written. I just don't like it. And while it's very definitely not Alan Moore's finest work, that's... It is worth pointing out that Alan Moore's worst is better than a lot of people's best. So, you know, bear that in mind too. The man is an absolute giant. I think it's fair to say that without Alan Moore blazing the trail, writers like Neil Gaiman, Grant Morrison, Garth Ennis, probably Warren Ellis, wouldn't have got the career that they've had. I don't want to suggest they wouldn't have had careers in comics, but they wouldn't have had the kind of careers they've had. I don't think they would have been given the leeway they were given had Alan Moore not set that example initially. Remember an interview uh, from Neil Gaiman in which he said that, you know, he and the other writers who got their careers going in the wake of Alan Moore were very much the tremolos to Alan Moore's Beatles in terms of taking over America. And I think that's fair. So that's that's a very brief overview of who Alan Moore is and 
it, it's it, it's genuinely impossible to overstate the influence his work has had on anglophone comics. Without Alan Moore, comics would have gone in a very different direction, I think. It was Alan Moore who started the move away from the Comics Code Authority and the restrictions on content that that placed on American comics. Now, would American comics have moved away from the CCA eventually anyway? Probably. But that doesn't take away from the fact that it was Alan Moore's work on Swamp Thing that started it. It was Alan Moore's refusal to change something in Swamp Thing to conform that started it. But, you know, also it was the editors of the comic who said, you know, right, then we'll publish it anyway. That, you know, was also required. But, you know, a more compliant writer would probably have caved. Moore didn't. And never has. Which is, I think, one of the reasons I respect his work so much. So many people are prepared to compromise and, you know, water down their vision in order to get published, in order to get published by a more mainstream publisher, in order to further their careers. Alan Moore has never given a monkey's about any of that. Alan Moore has always told the stories that he wanted to tell. And if people wouldn't let him, he simply went somewhere else. Integrity and talent are both in relatively scarce supply. In the same place, in this industry, almost unheard of. So here's to Alan Moore, a grumpy wizard from Northampton who really doesn't like comics anymore, but who has left an indelible mark on them in spite of himself. And all of that obviously is only scratching the surface. I, I cannot do a deep dive. If I gave the whole show over to someone like Alan Moore, I couldn't even begin to do a deep dive. You'd need an entire series for that, which we don't have time for. So we're going to scratch the surface on some other people in coming weeks. Uh, the likes of Frank Miller, uh, the aforementioned Neil Gaiman, Grant Morrison, Garth Ennis, Warren Ellis, and some classic people too, uh, the likes of um, Simonson, John Byrne, Walter Simonson, Jack Kirby himself, Stan Lee even, Steve Ditko, Ben Wen, Danny O'Neill, Joe Siegel and Jerry Schuster, and the really modern guys, Chip Zdarsky, Tom King, James Tinian. Yeah, it's, there's so many people who really should be household names and who are not. So lots of people for comics to dive into. Still very frustrated that I can't talk about Hollywood stuff because of the strike, but my goodness, there's some good stuff on. Looking forward to talking about it later when we can. But for now, we're running out of time. So very, very quickly, a couple of things. First of all, won't note for your diary, September the 18th at Major Tom Social, it will be the 200th Geek Pub Quiz. You heard me, 200th. For reasons that... I'm not going to go into, but I'm gutted about. I will not actually be there. I can't be. I won't be. I won't be. I'll be in a completely different town. But if you're not, if you're in Harrogate on September the 18th, you want to get yourself down to Major Tom Social and join in the 200th Geek Pub Quiz. It has become a true Harrogate institution and deservedly so. I'm going to talk at length about the Geek Pub Quiz in, a, in, a, in a, uh, an upcoming issue because I honestly, I am so proud of Steve and Helen and Chris. They have done such a, a an amazing job. So stick that in your diaries. Happening rather more imminently, this weekend, Saturday, the 26th of August, it is finally the Harrogate Pride event. Now, 
this is relaunching Harrogate Pride. Uh, Pride in Diversity kind of faltered. This is a bunch of new people picking up the torch and seeing if they can run with it. So Major Tom's Social and Geek Retreat on Oxford Street are the places to go. Retreat is kicking things off around about one-ish in the afternoon. Major Tom's, I think, is mostly looking towards the evening. It should be a fun time. I make no bones about how much I love Pride or how important I think it continues to be. Tonation Venus has always supported Harrogate Pride. We continue to do so. And so we hope that you will too. We will see you there. We're actually going to be at Geek Retreat all Saturday afternoon with a selection, a carefully curated selection of LGBTQIA plus comics that are either featuring characters from the LGBTQIA plus spectrum or are created by people who are LGBTQIA plus themselves or some combination thereof. We'll also be open as normal under the stairs at the Everyman Cinema on Saturday between 11 and 5.30 because it is possible for a shop to be in two places at once. Yeah, hope to see you there. Uh, And that's about it for this week. We will be back next week with um, a whole bunch of other geeky news, views and reviews. Very quick thank you to everyone who's got in touch with us so far uh, about their experiences of fandom. I look forward to hearing from many, many more of you. Please do. If you've got a fandom story, positive or negative, I would love to hear it. That's info at destinationvenus.co.uk or drop into the shop and have a chat when we're open. That email address, info at destinationvenus.co.uk. Also for any complaints, suggestions, questions, comments about the show, uh, if there's anything you'd like us to cover, and again, info at destinationvenus.co.uk. And if you have a geeky thing coming up that you'd like me to promote, the same email address. So we'll see you next week. Uh, with luck, the sag after strike will be over by then, and we'll be able to talk about stuff that's going on in Hollywood. I'm not holding my breath. The uh, The studios at the moment are not particularly behaving like people who want to come to any kind of reasonable solution news, which you probably heard on the mainstream media already by the time you hear this, Chandrayaan-3 made a perfect landing and is sending pictures back from the South Polar region of the moon. More on that next week, probably. I don't have time this week to go into it. It's still a breaking story as I record this, so there's nothing for me to tell you right now. So expect more on that next week. Uh, And, you know, more of the rest of the usual stuff. As I suspect we won't be able to, we still can't talk about stuff the studios are doing in Hollywood because of the strike. We will still have more comics news and news from British television. I'm hoping to have information about Doctor Who for you next week as well. So look forward to that. As well as, you know, more comics, wonderful women of science and all the other non-Hollywood related geeky news that you can shake a stick at if shaking sticks at things is your idea of a good time. I'm not here to judge. Just remains for me to tell you that Geeking with Destination Venus is a Venus Rising media production made here in what is at the moment an overcast and faintly miserable Harrogate. But that's the British summertime for you. We'll see you next week. Until we do, be kind to yourself, be kind to absolutely everybody else, and above all else, whatever you do, stay geeky. <laughs>